Well, let me invite you to turn to Acts chapter 7. We've been working our way through the book of Acts and just a quick review. Acts was written by Luke. Luke was a medical doctor. Uh, we probably wouldn't go to him today if we had something wrong, but, you know, in that day he was trustworthy. He was a friend of Paul, we come to find out. So a lot of the material that he gleaned and, and through the guidance of the Holy Spirit put into both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts was through his association with Paul and the other apostles. And as the Holy Spirit guided him, we have both the Gospel of Luke and then if you read the end of Luke and go right into the book of Acts, you can see that obviously the same person wrote them under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. It was written in about 62 AD, we believe, and uh, it was written to basically record the early church. It's a, it's a history book, if you will, history of how God worked in and through the early church and uh, to a certain degree set a pattern for us to learn from. Uh, culture has changed, approaches have changed, but the gospel message is still the same. And so as we think about that and we think about our context, what can we glean, what principles, if you will, come from the early church that we can learn from? We know that the, uh, that the church started on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus' resurrection. 40 days after his resurrection, he ascended back into heaven after telling the uh, disciples that he, was, he would be good to his word. He would send the Holy Spirit, the one who would come upon them and give them power to be the witnesses in their hometown and literally around the world. And that's what he did. And so we see that birth of the early church in chapter 2. We see the growth of the church. We see God continuing to use the apostles and the church in miraculous ways to grow a group upwards of, at this point, probably about fifteen to 20,000 people. Now, last week we also talked about that as that growth in, grew and, and as the church multiplied outward, the needs of the people multiplied with it. And the apostles' primary job was to, uh, was to preach, to teach the word of God, to pray, to give overall guidance to the church. And as those physical needs increased, uh, as we saw in the widows, both from Hebrew backgrounds and Grecian backgrounds, they had to, in a sense, multiply themselves through other leaders. And so they selected from among themselves seven men. Uh, many believe this is the, was the early deacons. We don't know for sure, but they certainly functioned like deacons. And they were called to wait on tables. Now, not wait on tables like we're going to be going over and eating and sitting around tables and someone may or may not wait on you, but the point being, when we think of waiting on tables, we think of you know, going into a restaurant and someone takes our order. Waiting on tables is a reference more to the banking of that day, how finances were handled. It was handled on a table. The money was put out. What do you need? And so as collections were made for the needs of people, and we saw that in those early chapters of how the people cared for one another, those who had needs, those needs were met through the church family. So as that happened, they needed people to help administer that, to run the table or to wait on the table and to care for those who were in need. Well, one of those people was Stephen. Now, Stephen was a, a deacon-like person, uh, an administrator, if you will, a servant, but he was also a fiery evangelist. 
And he was not ashamed of the gospel in any form or fashion and was more than willing to talk about it. And so we left last week with Stephen being confronted by the Jewish religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, that group of 70, kind of like our Supreme Court, but much larger, uh, roughly half Pharisees, roughly half Sadducees, who gave uh, oversight to the Jewish nation. And they were the law of that day. And a smart Jewish person knew you don't cross those guys. Well, Stephen was not a Jewish person anymore. In fact, he wasn't Jew at all. He was a Gentile. But he had come to faith in Christ, and he was more concerned about serving Jesus than serving the Sanhedrin. And so there was a big confrontation. And we'll see at the end of this chapter, Stephen becomes the first martyr for the faith. This is a long chapter. It starts in chapter 7, verse 1. goes all the way to the end and a little bit into chapter 8. And so to save my voice... And to uh, use our church family, I've asked a couple of our local scribes to come and uh, read. Uh, Scribe Randy and and Scribe Kelly there. And you can decide at the end by a show of hands which one sounds more like Moses, okay, when they're done. All right, so they're going to read this. Just follow along on the screen or in your Bible, and then we'll pick it up from there. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at the time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him this way, For 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and Afterward, they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave to gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was. And Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, 
the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses that had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and delivered by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt, at the Red Sea, and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai, and with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him, and in their hearts turned back to they told Aaron, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings forty years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god Rephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. 
Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took, to the, when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels that have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at it. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said. I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out to the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. When they were, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep, and Saul approved of their killing him. All right, thank you, gentlemen. Let's give them a hand for their hard work this morning. Rather than vote, let's just agree they, all, they both sounded like Charlton Heston. How about that? Well, growth whether it's personal growth or growth as a church, at times is going to be challenged. There are times in our faith when we just, you know, something connects like it maybe hasn't connected before and we begin to grow through a particular area of our life. Well, we can almost be guaranteed that someone or something is going to begin to oppose that. Why? Because we have an enemy. And an enemy who is, who is sly and is always looking to discourage us, to defeat us personally and corporately. Well, although Satan's name is not mentioned in chapter 7, we know from Ephesians 6, he's always behind the scenes, always working to try to discourage and discredit a church or an individual Christian. And so we want to, there's, there's five things I want us to think about from this passage. I'm, I'm certainly not going to reread it, but I want to just try to sum some things up based on what uh, Randy and Kelly read and then look at some other passages to try to help us grasp this a little bit more. The first thing we're going to learn is that growth is challenged when obedience gives way to pragmatism. pragmatism. Obedience gives way to pragmatism. 
Pragmatism is, that's not a familiar word, it's, it's what's practical. What's, you know, we might think of it as common sense. Well, no one would ever do this. Everybody does this because that's practical, that's pragmatic. Obedience gives way to pragmatism. Stephen begins his review of Jewish history with Abraham's journey of obedience to the land of Israel. You'd find that in Genesis chapter 12, verse, or uh, chapter 12 verse, through chapter 25. Now, you could say, oh, you know, we look back at Abraham and we think, what a great man of faith and, you know, the father of faith from the book of Genesis and we see him mentioned throughout the New Testament, particularly in the book of Romans, which we'll look at in a minute. But let's think of that from a practical standpoint. He was making a living. He was living comfortably, as far as we know, north of the area of Israel. And God comes along and says, I want you to move several hundred miles south. You've never been there. You, you'll only get there and then, I'm, you know, you're not going to live that much longer. I give you a promised son, which took many, many years, as we know, to come. And so from a practical standpoint, it made no sense. But there are times when God asks us to do things that don't always make sense, aren't practical from a human standpoint. God fulfilled his promise to Abraham with a land, a son, and a sign, a sign of circumcision. In Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 18, we write, read these words. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's room was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words that was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. Abraham was that model of faith, that model of obedience, even though it may not have been practical. Think about what of his, some of his friends, his neighbors would have said. You're going where? Where is that? How long is it going to take you? What are you going to do when you get there? Well, I don't know for sure. I just, God has called me to do this. And it will make more sense, I think, as I go along. What if someone came to you and said that was their plan? What if it was your son or daughter? And they said, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do, mom and dad. But I just believe God is calling me to do this and such. It's not practical. Maybe it doesn't make very much money. Maybe it's even dangerous. What would you do? Would you encourage them and say, hey, go for it. Trust the Lord. He is greater than anything you'll ever face. Or would you say, well, now no, wait a minute. We didn't raise you to be poor. We didn't raise you to go do some wild-haired thing. You see, obedience with God is really the bottom line. We either obey Him or we don't. There are non-negotiable things that he tells us to do. We've talked about that many times. We're called to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. That's not a negotiable command. It's how do I do that? Holy Spirit, empower me to do that. We are called to make disciples. It's not a negotiable thing. It's, it's a command. We either obey it or we disobey it. 
and we live in disobedience saying, well, it's not my problem. That's for the missionaries. No, if you know Jesus, you're a missionary. You just don't live outside of this country right now. But maybe God may call you someday to go beyond our borders. We are all called to obey. And it's not always a practical thing, but it is a step of obedience. A year ago, the, the, uh, our council blessed Pastor Brent and I with a devotional book, and I have found some really good devotions in that. And uh, I just want to share one real quickly, simply entitled, Lord of the Harvest. It says, anytime the Bible gives a name for God, we can know that the name is descriptive of his character. When Jesus calls God the Lord of the harvest, he is not describing something peripheral to God's nature. The harvest is at the very core of God's heart. It is who he is by our nature. We often struggle with how to pray in accordance with God's will. Raise our hand. The prayer in this verse is a sure thing. If we pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out workers into his field, we know we are praying the intent of his heart. We do not have to weaken our requests as so often we do with the disclaimer, if it's your will, you know, we often do that, I do that. At the end of our prayer, no, it is God's will without a doubt. We can be sure of it. We often want to spend a little time with God but have very little to do with his harvest. That is a concept as absurd as a farmer wanting very little to do with the crops. A farmer's life revolves around his field, so will the life of his family and his workers and so forth. God's work revolves around his harvest, so will the work of his family. Abraham was a model of obedience. How about us? Are we modeling obedience to a world that is watching or are we modeling convenience and pragmatism? God's call on our life is to obey, not to negotiate, not to figure out how do we get out of things, but as a church family and individually say, Lord, okay, how do I do this? Show me where you want me to plug in. How can I help this church family at this particular time in this particular place Further your kingdom, and I want to be a worker in your harvest field, whatever role you call me to play. The second thing we learn from verses 9 through 19 is that not only is obedience something that, over, that, that is more important really in God's mind than human pragmatism, but wisdom at times is going to be overcome by jealousy. That's another discouraging thing that happens in our lives individually perhaps and corporately as church families. You see, both Joseph's brothers and the new king, who didn't know Joseph, were overcome with jealousy and allowed it to dictate their actions. You can read about that in Genesis 26 through 50. The church is a body created by God to work wisely together and not be disabled by jealousy. We all have a role to play. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 15 Paul writes this, Now if the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not be for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But if, in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them just as he wanted them to be, if they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one 
body. God was working through Joseph and the, and the early uh, leaders, the fathers of Israel, if you will, but jealousy was reigning supreme. And yet, fortunately, sovereignly, God used Joseph to accomplish his purposes to continue to build his kingdom in and through them. And he wants to do the same through us. Jealousy has no place in the Christian life. Now, you might read about a jealous God in the Bible, but that's a different kind of jealousy. That's a zeal for the things of God. Yes, we can be jealous that way. We can be jealous for things that are important, but jealousy and envy of one another has no place in the body. All it does is just hinder the process that God wants to accomplish in and through us to send us into the harvest field, to see people come to Christ, to continue to be... The, the body that God has called us to be. If you're a, uh, a, a fan of the Narnia movies, you might remember this particular scene from the Chronicles of Narnia, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Lucy, who was the youngest of the children and really was the initial one that, you know, led them into Narnia and, and, and put her faith in Aslan and all the things that are there to typify Jesus and the kingdom of God, was a jealous girl. And it came out in that particular scene where she goes into a house kind of, of incantations. And she, wrote, she comes across a book and it has spells in it. And one of the spells has the ability or the power, quote unquote, to make her into what she really wants to be. Well, what she really wants to be is as pretty as her sister Susan. She's always had that jealousy, always that sense of, I'm not pretty enough, I'm not good enough, I, I want to be like Susan, not in an admiring way, but more in a, a way of jealousy. And so she finds this book, she looks at what it says, suddenly the book, there's a mirror that appears, and she suddenly realizes, oh my goodness, I'm as pretty as Susan. So she tears the page out and hangs on to it. Well, later, in a later scene, she realizes that the result of that is that Susan her sister, then never existed. And she said, oh my goodness, what have I done? So then you see a little exchange between her and Aslan. Lucy says Aslan. Aslan, uh, the lion that represents Jesus. Aslan, she replies, what have you done, child? I don't know, that was awful. But you chose it, Lucy, he tells her. I didn't mean to choose all that, Lucy answers. I just wanted to be beautiful like Susan, that's all. Aslan tells her, you wished yourself away and with it much more. Your brothers and sisters wouldn't know about Narnia without you, Lucy. You discovered it first, remember? I'm so sorry, Lucy said sadly. You doubt your value, says Aslan. Don't run from who you are. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says, Of every believer in Christ, for you are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. Jealousy removes our heart, our, our, our gaze from the things of God and puts them so much on ourselves, then we begin to measure ourselves among other people, both inside and outside the walls of the church. And it hinders us from being who God has created us to be. A workmanship, literally an art project, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Let's keep our gaze on the Lord and think about, Lord, what have you called me to do in this place at this time with this group of people? How can I serve you? How can I be part of your harvest and be all that I can be, to coin a phrase, in Jesus Christ? 
Growth is challenged when obedience gives way to pragmatism, when wisdom is overcome by jealousy, and when holiness is sacrificed for idolatry. In verses 20 through 47, we see that in the life of Israel under the leadership of Moses. Like Joseph, Moses was called to be a deliverer of his people from Egypt, and he did that. He brought them into the promised land. He... he, uh, He gave them the law, calling them to holiness before the Lord. I take that back. He brought them up to the river of the Holy Land, and Joshua took them in. We know the story there. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16, says it this way for the believer in Christ. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober. In other words, pay attention. Think about what choices we're making. Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming as obedient. There's that word again. Man, don't you wish that wasn't in the Bible, huh? (laughs) My kids didn't like that word growing up, and I don't particularly like it at times growing up either as a Christian. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you have had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, So be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy, because I am holy. The word holiness literally means, or holy, to be set apart for a special purpose. To be set apart for a special purpose. Wisdom says, keep my focus on the Lord so I know what role I play in the body of Christ. Jealousy averts that gaze to myself and comparison to others. Holiness says, no, wait a minute. I'm going to set myself apart as a holy object of God's use to be used in his kingdom for his purposes and for his glory, not for mine. But idolatry, some would say, is the original sin. In fact, when the Thessalonians turned to God from idols, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul commends them for that. Now, these were literal idols that they had. In our culture, we don't really, you know, I've been to a lot of your homes. I've never really seen a, hey, can I show you my case of idols over here? Oh, very nice. You ought to see mine. Yeah, oh, there, you know, let's compete. Let's be jealous for each other's idols, you know. No, we don't do that. But subtly, idolatry really is a form of worship that can gradually replace our worship of God. And I think in our culture it's very, very subtle. In other cultures you go like, you know, Phil and Carol tell stories of seeing idolatry just rampant in a very physical way in Burkina Faso. And, and the people believed in the power of the idols that would help their crops or help their health. And, they, and part of their mission was to turn these people from these things to the great healer, to the God of the, of the harvest and so forth. And that was part of how the, har- the, the harvest came in for them was through literal farming practices by one of the members of their church, by Pastor Madhu, who planted a crop of rice and it grew, grew like nothing had ever grown before. And he said, the God of the Bible gave me that rice. And that began to open the hearts of people who literally worship idols. Tim Keller, one of my favorite author says this, sin isn't only doing bad things, it is more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. He's written a book called The Reason for God, and he says this, If you center your life and your identity on your spouse or partner, you will be emotionally dependent, jealous, and controlling. The other person's problems will be overwhelming to you. 
If you center your life and identity on your family and children, you will try to live your life through your children until they resent you or have no self of their own. At worst, you may abuse them when they displease you. If you center your life and identity on your work and career, you will be a driven workaholic and a boring, shallow person. At worst, you will lose family and friends, and if your career goes poorly, develop deep depression. If you center your life and identity on money and possessions, you'll be eaten up by worry or jealousy about money. You'll be willing to do unethical things to maintain your lifestyle, which will eventually blow up your life. If you center your life and identity on pleasure, gratification, and comfort, you will find yourself getting addicted to something. You will become chained to the escape strategies by which you avoid the hardness of life. If you center your life and identity on relationships and approval, you will be constantly overhurt by criticism, thus always losing friends. You will fear confronting others and therefore be a useless friend. If you center your life and identity on a noble cause, you will divide the world into good and bad and demonize your opponents. Ironically, you will be controlled by your enemies. Without them, you have no purpose. And finally, if you center your life and identity on religion and morality, you will, if you are living up to your moral standards, be proud, self-righteous, and cruel. If you don't live up to your moral standards, your guilt will be utterly devastating. Idolatry. Very subtle, but very, very powerful. You see, growth, personal growth, corporate growth is challenged when obedience gives way to practical things. Well, you just don't do that. I mean, that's, you know, come on, think about it. It's too expensive, too much time. Wisdom is overcome by jealousy. Rather than seeing ourselves fitting into the body and working together as the people of Israel were supposed to do, jealousy can keep our attention more on ourselves than on the Lord. Holiness is sacrificed for idolatry. Hearts become cold and callous in verses 48 through 53. Stephen's final accusation is that the Jewish people put more effort into maintaining the physical temple than their relationship with God, which eventually led them to reject Jesus. One of the commentators I read said this, well-rehearsed knowledge in our lives or a relationship based on truth? Big difference. Well-rehearsed knowledge, lots of Bible teaching, lots of knowledge, or does that guide us into truth which sets us free in Jesus? Because it all comes down to relationship. All comes down to relationship. What is it that interferes with our relationship with Jesus? And we all have those interfering things that we have to deal with. They're kind of like flies that you have to swat away and eventually, hopefully, put them to death, as the Bible says. We all have those battles, don't we? Jesus' goal is not just to educate us in the things of him, but to set us free. That only comes through application, which often comes through, there's that word again, obedience. Obedience is a freeing word when we really grasp the intention of it. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 13 talks about the function of the body in helping us do that very thing. It says, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today. Not literally today, but it, the idea is often and regularly so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. You see, we all can be exposed to the coldness of sin. The phrase that I learned many years ago from my first pastor, 
Sin will always take us farther than we ever imagined. And it will cost us far more than we ever thought it would. Sin is, is, is the world, the flesh, the devil's opportunity to have legitimate human needs met apart from the will of God. The will of God is freeing. It's good. It's right. It's, it's always the best thing. But sin says, do it this way. Go ahead and be jealous. You have, you have a right to do that. Don't, don't worry about the practical part of faith. You know, just, just live your life. Don't worry about it. Holiness, that's just for the ultra-religious people. It's okay to, you know, have a few special things in your life. And eventually our hearts can become cold and callous if we're not careful, like the people of Israel. We just kind of miss the whole point of living the Christian life. I've met so many people that have allowed a small sin to develop in their life and to become a stronghold, that habitual pattern of thought raised up against the knowledge of God as it would be defied, and it begins to control them. And you know what happens to their hearts? It becomes cold and callous over time. They quit praying, they quit reading God's word, they quit worshiping. Oh, they worship. They worship the wrong things. And these are people that have trusted in Christ just like I'm going to say all of us have. Extreme cold is kind of a unique thing. I, living in Kansas, there were times that I thought I was going to just freeze to a tree somewhere. Um, extreme cold, and you match that with wind like happens in Kansas, there's two enemies that come with that, frostbite and hypothermia. Frostbite is a condition that affects the extremities of your body, your hands, your feet, your nose, you know, this kind of thing. And as, it, as, as the weather gets colder and colder and colder, you begin to turn numb. Your body starts to protect itself by all of the heat of your body goes into your organs because it, it, your body's thinking, you know, buddy, you can live without a hand, but you can't live without a heart. You've got to have a heart. So it's going to sacrifice the outside stuff before the inside stuff. And if that's not dealt with, amputation does occur in extreme cases. But the other one, hypothermia, gets to the point where the body's temperature drops so low, it literally begins to shut down. And at first we chill because we're trying to warm up. And then you know what? The chills go away. And then people feel this oh, sudden peace and calm. And they fall asleep. And then they die. Because the body is shut down. That's what sin does to people. It begins to make their heart cold to the point where it almost begins to shut down for the things of God. And unfortunately, I've seen that many times in people's lives and have struggled with enough issues in my own to know that path is very, very easy to go on. The final thing is that what growth what challenges growth is violence replaces repentance. Stephen's message was not received by the leaders. That's pretty obvious. And their response was violent. Now, we're not sure if the whole Sanhedrin or a representative group took these guys out. Now, according to the law, he was proclaiming Jesus as Lord. They would have said that's blasphemy. The problem was Jesus is Lord. He is God. So he wasn't blaspheming according to Leviticus 24. But in their minds they were because our hearts were cold. They were more concerned about the idolatry of keeping a system in place. They were more concerned about the jealousy among themselves and more concerned about pragmatism than obedience to God. And so they took it out on him in a violent way. One of the things that we are told in selecting leadership for local churches just like ours in second or first Timothy chapter three, verse three, it says, "Someone who is not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, 
not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. That's just one of many characteristics that it says, choose your leaders very carefully. We're going to do that later today as we have lunch. Aren't you excited now? <laughs> we have seen a growing violence over the years in India. Uh, Kelly, more than me, as he's been there a lot more and he keeps in closer contact with Pastor Kieran, but we know it's a real thing. We live in a world in our culture that has not become violent against the church. Maybe every now and then you hear of someone who gets really upset. Could that day come? I don't know. I don't know. But I do know this, when a church is growing and flourishing like it is in India, or a couple weeks ago as I read about the fastest growing church, you know where that is? In Iraq. In Iraq. And they're being persecuted like crazy. And they just keep growing and growing and growing. They are being challenged by all of these things just as the early church was. We will be too when we stand up and decide we're going to serve Jesus. Anytime we do that, personally and corporately, churches just like ours will in some ways be opposed. Just take it easy, guys. Don't try to push it on us. I want to do something a little bit different as we conclude. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up because they're going to help provide a uh, visual image here of what we're trying to do. And as they come, I want to read one more uh, passage. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, Paul is writing from prison and he tells the people in Philippi, whatever happens to him, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. That phrase, striving together, being together, Paul uses in, in the Greek, it's not translated always in English this way, 16 times. What's he trying to say? We will be better and we will stand stronger and we will live the kind of lives God calls us to live more consistently when we do it together. The picture there is of an athletic team that are, in a sense, locking arms, leaning forward into whatever they're facing and looking to the Lord. And I'd like us to do the same. So I'm going to ask you to stand and you may say, I'm not coming back next Sunday if he asks me to do this kind of stuff. I want you to all head for the middle, and I want you to stand side by side, and I ask the worship team to come up, and just, can I be part of this group? Oh, maybe. <laughs> and I want you to lock arms. Now, you might think, this is kind of weird, Pastor Pat, just, you know, let it go. Sorry. We're going to have a lot of guest speakers in November, you'll get over it. But I want you to lock arms, symbolic, of one body, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, if you know Jesus, you're in this thing together, whether you like it or not, whether you even like the person next to you or not. <laughs> but we are a body, and God calls us to function, how? Humbly, before our God, humbly before one another, not a letting jealousy to interrupt our obedience to the great commission or the great commandment, but as an athletic team, in a sense, locking arms, if you want to kind of lean forward, good athletes are always in that athletic stance, so to speak, and we're going to look to the Lord. And we're going to do two things. I'm going to invite you to pray quietly or out loud. It's completely up to you. I want you to honestly stand before the Lord. Repentance is not a popular word in our culture. But it's all over the Bible. Repentance means turning away from things like idols. Turning away from things like jealousy. Turning away from things like a cold and callous heart. And saying, Lord Jesus, I just want to turn to you.
I want to lock arms with my brothers and sisters, and I want to look to you, and I want to listen, and I want to lean in to the great commission and the great commandment as a follower of Christ. And then I want to ask us to just pray that God would continue to use us. He has for a hundred years to spread the gospel all over the world. So let's do that now. Let's just bow quietly or out loud. Just pray and ask the Lord to examine your heart that if there's anything you need to turn from, you will. Let's take a moment to not just turn from something, but turn to someone and turn to that someone who is the head of the church, looking towards him, saying, Lord, I am, I am locked arm in arm with brothers and sisters as part of your body, and I am leaning in to the, the call that you have on my life, and I'm going to look to you as the author and perfecter of my faith, that you might guide and direct me into the work of your kingdom. Let's do that now. Father, we thank you for the time you've given us to worship you. Worship you in song. Worship you through fellowship of the body of Christ. Worship you through giving. Worship you through the truth of your word that we might understand more and more who you are and all that you've done for us. Lord, the passage that was read this morning is, doesn't, doesn't uh, make the people of Israel look very good. And yet we confess that the, if someone was to read church history, that doesn't always look good either, Lord. If someone was to look at our lives very closely, there are times it doesn't look very good. But Lord, we want to recommit ourselves together, locking arms, leaning forward, and looking to you as the head of this church to be involved with your kingdom, maybe in ways we've never done before. Thank you, Father, for, for hearing our prayers, for knowing our hearts, and thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.